Buried, Not Forgotten is a true crime podcast that is for mature audiences. We will discuss topics that some people might find upsetting, including mental illness, violence, drug use, and murder. Interview subjects' opinions are their own and should not be taken as fact. It is 1975, and 18-year-old Walter Smith has just been found murdered and buried in a cave. That week, Peter Hauer is cooperative with investigators until he disappears, and a strange note is found on his typewriter. The police view it as a suicide note and confession to Walter's murder, but things are not as simple as they first appear. West by God. Almost heaven. God's country. If you've never been to West Virginia, or if you don't live there, then forget what you heard. This is a real-life Appalachian murder mystery. Episode 3. The Witches. We had a lot more success learning about who Peter Hauer was in comparison to Walter Smith. We know Walter was from Follinsby, West Virginia. His yearbooks list him as a member of the ski club, basketball and swimming teams, and the student council. We know that Walter was a rising sophomore at West Virginia University studying forestry, and we know that he had worked at Watoga the previous summer. One of our first questions was, did Walter and Peter know each other? The answer is yes. The year before this all went down, the two of them worked at the same park all summer. We know that Walter was familiar with the area. In his room at the park, police would find a small hand-drawn map of the area he was last seen. And in earlier episodes, we've mentioned witchcraft and the occult. We were told that Walter Smith was interested in the communal groups in the area and had been corresponding with a self-identified witch. We're told he always wore a ring and necklace that could have signified membership in a cult, kind of a quarter moon with a star on it what's called a morning star ring, according to what we've uncovered. Investigators also found that quarter moon morning star ring in his room. According to the investigating officer, Walter's mother said that if he ever took off the ring, that would be the day he died. Let's get back to our cave search and rescue teams with Ed, who you heard from in the last episode. He remembers finding weird stuff in caves in the area. Did you see anything... During the search, or at any other time in the Lobelia Saul Peter Cave, do you see anything painted on the walls? No. I did see the the cave uh, that had the satanic pentagram in it. So I went up there with National Guardsmen, you know, with the helmets. The gate was locked, and we parked out there and walked up maybe a half mile up this old dirt road up to this house, the house. There was nobody in it, although it was occupied. I suspect they get the woods running. Ed and the National Guardsmen went over a hill, found the cave entrance they were looking for, and went inside. The cave he is talking about is not on Peter's property, and just remember there are hundreds of caves in the area, and not all of them had been explored. This consisted of one room, fairly good-sized room, and... uh, with setting stones, you know, and uh, there were handles all over the place, not lead, of course, but 
must have been a hundred candles around in there. There was a pile of rocks in the middle that you could take as an altar. You know, I looked around, look, that's all it was. It was just, you know, that pattern, you could tell people had been in there. You know, there was no place to hide a body or anything else. So that's probably the, the weirdest. We kept hearing about the Island of the Red Hood, and it's a real place, but it sounds much more sinister than it ever actually was. The Red Hood is a misunderstood symbol, and in reality was the red hood of a car propped up against a tree, marking the turnoff to an alternative community. Peter, of course, was friends with a number of them, and uh, there's quite a few, what I would say hippie cavers. Nothing bad, particularly, but they, you know, were doing marijuana. I think there was some peyote around. Some witchcraft was associated with them. People I met and, and knew, but didn't, didn't associate with, always seemed to be fairly nice. They, uh, they had bonfire parties down there from time to time. Chuck says they'd find evidence of the communal groups while conducting research. A lot of uh, people, it could have been the, the Red Hood, would uh, leave little altars or little statues around. We find it in a lot of caves. There was always that, that rumor of devil uh, worship, but it was actually uh, witchcraft. But, uh, you know, they... They also kind of disappeared. A lot of them disappeared after uh, Walter died. A number of people just disappeared out of the valley. Doug, Peter Howard's neighbor from episode one, made a new friend that summer. But uh, the older lady was a dark-haired lady, mm -hmm. and her granddaughter and me was the same age, and we kind of piled around together, you know. When they came in here, you know, they was in school and she was in the same grade I was. And summertime come, she was all over there, nothing to do. And hell, we'd meet each other at Hill Creek and go swimming together and do this and do that and hiking. And, yeah, I was just piddling around like yeah. that, more or less. And they, everybody said she was a gypsy woman. And they, she was the one that was supposedly had made the ring appear that boy hit on out of the thin air like this. Bunch of them in there. A bunch of Jacob. They like, called themselves empties. But I don't know where I don't know where they're from. Yeah. I ain't seen none of them since he left out of here. As Doug was saying goodbye to his friend, her grandmother, the dark haired gypsy, told him something that he still thinks about. Yeah, she told me that. She said before my lifetime was up, I, I would know who really killed Pete Hire. Lori, who you heard from in the last episode, rescuing the little Angora goat, was in a unique position as a friend of Peter's and as a new member of the local police force. 
She remembers she was given an unusual assignment during the investigation. They decided that they wanted to send me to a conference in Morgantown. And uh, this was, you know, after Pete had been missing and they'd investigated the caves. And there were these symbols on the inside, painted on the inside of the cave walls that seemed they had been put there fairly recently. And I can't imagine that it was something that Pete would have done. You know, he was a spelunker. He was into preserving the caves, not defacing them with graffiti. And anyway, so they gave me, you know, a, a list, a picture of these symbols and told me while I was in Morgantown to go to their big library and see if I could figure out what they were and what they meant. And the bottom line was they were they were witchcraft symbols. But it should be a part of the police, you know, reports somewhere. Somebody should have pictures or, you know, copies of that, I would think. But they are not mentioned at all. Within the report, there are multiple items that are listed as attached, but apparently cannot be located today in response to a Freedom of Information Act request. We asked Lori what it was like getting hired by the police department. There was an ad in the paper that said the town of Marlinton is looking for a new town cop. Must have a high school diploma. And that's it. <laughs> so wow. we applied for the job. And had a nice conversation with the mayor. And you know, honestly, at that point, I didn't even have a driver's license. Lori said she had to make her uniform by hand. And she'd have to catch rides to and from town to get to work. We were living at the old Dameron place at the corner of the Lobelia Road and the Briary Knob Road. Mm-hmm. And I would walk through the park to 219 and hitchhike to Marlinton in my cop suit. To be wow. <laughs> well, everybody knew me. You know, they were going to Marlinton. They were coming home at the end of the day. It wasn't that difficult. Lori remembers the transplants, the out-of-towners that moved to the area. Well, sure, that was the island of the Red Hood. That was the commune over in Jacob. But she doesn't think they were into anything too disturbing. They were too busy, like, organic gardening and raising goats and babies and having saunas. <laughs> Lori remembers how the longtime residents reacted to newcomers. We built a, a pool in, the, in Rush Run in the creek just below Bill's house and then built a sauna. And some of the local rednecks used to park up on the Briar Knob Road when we'd get together and have saunas. And we used to joke about that's how we were going to pay for our farm because we were going to, like, put in, you know, those, those binoculars that you have to put a quarter in. Unashamed outdoor nudity certainly turned heads in a conservative rural community, but the encounters were not always so innocent. Lori remembers one incident while her husband was at work. So I was there alone at the house. And one day, you know, afternoon, there was this boom, ping, ping, ping on the roof. What was that? Boom, ping, ping, ping on the roof. I'm a city kid, you know. It took me a minute or two to figure out, hell, that's somebody raining shot off the roof. Lori said maybe whoever was shooting didn't realize someone was living in the old house. So I went outside and I hollered, hey. There's people living here now. Got animals. Got people. Shoot someone else. Boom. Ping, ping, ping. 
Oh, wrong, wrong move. Wrong girl to pull that move on. Had a gun in the house. It was an over-under, a 410-22 double barrel. Grabbed that gun up. It was loaded. Grabbed the gun up, marched down to the crossroads. Here's two 14, 15-year-old boys. Lori says she stood her ground. I said, you boys want to fight? Okay, but you draw straws to figure out who's first. We're going to pace it off 20 steps here in the road, turn and fire. Who's first? Oh, no, lady. Oh, my God, lady. We didn't mean nothing. You know, and I never had any more trouble. I've had none of them. Not all of the newcomers were prepared for what they would encounter with some of the local folks. We've heard quite a few times that whatever happened to Walter and Peter, they were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. It took us a while to figure out what that really meant. But it's that these new arrivals, like Walter and Peter, they weren't accustomed to violence. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's 1975, you know, we, we'd all just come home from Woodstock kind of thing, you know, what the hell? <laughs> Maybe some of us were still there, who knows? <laughs> we thought we were. <laughs> Lori says some of the case evidence almost points to a more organized criminal element. Obviously, there had been, you know, some, some planning, some other involvement, you know. He wouldn't have killed anybody. Good God. I mean, he was just a big teddy bear of a guy. You know? Total pacifist. We asked if she believed the official version of what happened. Hell no. He wouldn't have killed anybody. You know? And like I said, he wouldn't have hung himself 30 foot in a tree on a short piece of rope with a fractured skull either. You're listening to Buried, Not Forgotten, a Veritas Underground Media production. Let's get back to the police report. We had a lot of trouble getting our hands on a copy, but once we did, it was a game changer. It was written by West Virginia State Trooper Chad Schaefer. And after a little research, we got in touch with him. Hey, Chad, how's it going? Oh, Mom, it's going. How you doing, sir? Chad was in his early 20s at the time, but he was assigned as lead investigator. Like everyone else we've talked to on the law enforcement side, he said this was the biggest case the area had seen up to that point. I searched the... Uh roof and I came up you know a lot of stuff like astrology and stuff but I came up with a ring and a necklace I think I shared that with you once before that turned out to be a cult called the morning star and uh, so I kept those had you heard about them before no sir no okay uh, this is an entirely new um, no, nobody in the state police had ever heard anything like that. To be honest, with you. I, I was the first one that I know of to ever get involved in something like this. Chad remembers meeting two of Walter Smith's friends in the week following Walter's disappearance, before the body was discovered. Walter's two friends, 
rode around with Chad in his patrol car while he interviewed area residents, asking if anyone had seen a young man on a yellow bicycle recently. Chad suspected that the two young friends of Walter's could be involved in devil worship. I know one time I met with two boys, and and this is before anybody else got involved. We found that you know the cave behind Peter's house was what's called a salt Peter cave, and and I'd gone in at first by myself. And then these two boys one day, I took them back there who used to be involved and maybe still were somewhat in uh, the worship of Satan. Uh, I think I showed you they would not let their uh, one boy sat in the front seat, one was in the back, but they would not touch my Bible, which was in my cruiser. It was right on the seat between me and whoever was in the front seat with me. But we walked in that cave. They went nuts. They said something evil has happened here. I mean, they really went nuts. Chad says that the two friends were also there when he interviewed one of the witches that lived nearby. She knew both Peter and Walter. Chad remembers that she was in her mid-twenties. When I had the boys with me, we went. It was raining that day. I had my raincoat on. We went over to this girl's house. She had all kinds of weird rings on her fingers. And I had a tape recorder hidden on me with a microphone up my sleeve, taping everything she said. When I go back to the cruiser, the boy said, she's real strong with black magic. I'll never forget that. But when I go back to the office, there's nothing on that tape recorder. So Chad was trying to record the conversation. But when he played back the tape, there was nothing on it. He says he was sure that the tape recorder was functioning properly, and he couldn't explain it. So he tried to interview her again. And then after the body was found, I think that same evening, she came to the office. And I recorded her with a different tape recorder. And it was a cassette tape recorder. The first one I had was a reel-to-reel, small Mm reel-to-reel. But but the second one I taped on and let her talk for an hour. And after it was over with, uh, you know, it was coming to a conclusion. I didn't forget the tape recorder clicked, and she turned around. She says, oh, were you taping me? I said, yeah. Well, that's fine. And when she left out there, again, nothing was on that tape recorder. Chad says that he was baffled by the recorder malfunction, but he remembers the conversation pretty clearly. Neither recorder recorded anything. Well, she was devastated because we found a body, and she was just heart sick. She knew... Uh, Walter Smith. You know, she just couldn't believe Peter would do something like that. And and basically, most of the people in that area said Peter was a very um, peace-loving individual. Chad remembered a lot. And after spending a career in law enforcement, reflecting back on the case now, he agrees the whole thing could have gone a different way. So did Peter Howard kill himself? Don't know. Could he have been killed? don't know. And hung up there. That's why I said, you know, it'd be interesting to see a pathology report. And Chad says, even he is skeptical of the typewriter note. Back then, you didn't have DNA. Uh, I don't think the letter was processed for latent prints. Uh, If so, it would have been done at, you know, CIB. Probably should have taken the typewriter, make sure the typewriter was the one that typed that letter, which, as far as I'm concerned, it was. But did he type it? Was it made to type it? I don't know. 
any type of resolution? I don't know. Walter Smith's father, a successful businessman, had been an executive for a steel company and then later served as president of the State Board of Education, an appointment by the governor of West Virginia at the time, a man named Arch Moore. The manner in which the investigation was handled was unconventional at best. Chad remembers having to report to Walter's father, who was not a member of a law enforcement agency. And, uh, I basically was in, I answered to uh, Walter Smith's dad. You know, a lot of times I just get into that area and then get a radio call. He wanted me to want to talk to me. I, I got in an argument with him a couple of times. So I just told him, I said, I said you're hindering the investigation. You're not helping. Uh, if I call me back, I said, I'm going out to do something. And I think twice, I think I really got kind of frustrated with the father. Uh, I was not happy about that. It, it really hindered the case. Walter Smith's father brought dozens of people with him from Fallensby, West Virginia. Not too long after that, the uh, met with the victim's parents there, so I can recall, and I showed the ring and a necklace, which I gave to the mother, my, my best recollection, and she just screamed, and she made a statement that she said, my son said the day he took those items off his body, he would die. I'll never forget that. And it wasn't long before the West Virginia National Guard would be called out to assist in the search for Walter. Remember, only the governor of West Virginia could deploy the National Guard. We're not going to spend too much time getting into the governor, Archmore, but he was a friend of the Smith family and the first governor in West Virginia to serve multiple terms since Reconstruction. This gentleman that came down had a lot of power. Uh, Walter Smith's daddy had a lot of power. I'll just leave it there. Mr. Smith had a, he had to have between 20 to 40 men down there. They had campers down there. They had already, I think I shared with you, they, it takes like two years to get a reservation at Watoga and back then. And, and they had already basically kicked everybody out of their lodges and his men moved in those lodges. This is how much political clout this Mr. Smith had. Peter Hauer was interviewed over the phone and in person by the Smith family, the Watoga DNR officers, and the local police at least five times before he disappeared. Yet, the police report does not include his witness statement. It's just missing. We're going to take a closer look at the report in episode four, so hang on for that. He had been interviewed, before that time, I think he had been interviewed by the DNR guys. Oh, those guys told me, he said, he's, he's not uh, he, a suspect, don't you worry about him. I mean, I remember that. So, Chad is saying that the DNR game wardens interviewed Peter Hauer and didn't suspect him at all in this. And uh, he just disappeared. I mean, that's all there was to it. My report was, you know, as far as I was concerned, you know, there may have been uh, an occultic murder. I was transferred out not too long after that, which I was thankful for. To be honest with you, I was getting kind of paranoid. Chad was transferred out of the area and went on to have a long career in law enforcement and ministry. We asked him if he remembered writing the police report and sent him a copy so we could discuss it. His first interview was incredible, but 
After he read the police report, he gave us the real shock. Stay tuned for what he said when we called him back. On June 14th, the Charleston Gazette published a story titled, Evidence Indicates Ritual in Murder. A Watoga game warden was quoted in the story about the discovery of Walter's remains. The following day, on Sunday, June 15th, the Sunday Gazette published a full retraction saying, in fact, there was no evidence of a ritual slaying. You can find both on our website. Within days of the crime, much of the evidence and details were being discussed openly, including the authenticity of the typewriter note and the condition of Walter's remains. These are things that only someone associated with the crime should be aware of, but like you've heard before, the crime scene was not well secured. Let's just recap what we learned in episode three. Keep in mind, Mr. Smith had influence over the investigation, the communications, and the evidence in the case. The lead investigator was a state trooper in his 20s, and now, as a retired corporal, 45 years later, has doubts about the case. Peter Howard was interviewed and cleared as a suspect by the DNR and game wardens. We haven't really gotten into a discussion of the motive yet, and what the police report describes is not really believable. The first sentence in the section on motive says, quote, The mode of operation is not clearly known. However, from evidence secured, the following is a possibility of what happened. Right now, you're listening to an old-time song called June Apple. It's being played by Roland Vinger. Roland was a friend of Peter Howard's, and while putting this podcast together, his name came up a lot. While Joe, Nicole, and I were interviewing people, Roland was also researching a book about the case, and we talked to a lot of the same folks. His book, titled The Ballad of Peter Howard, was published this spring of 2021, and in addition to composing an original piece of music, Roland and his wife Janet created a quilt-like moving panorama called a cranky. It was a popular form of entertainment in the 1800s and would be performed with live music or narration. We are posting links to the Cranky video and a link to buy his book on our website. We want to thank him for his music, his art, and his determination to tell this story in an even-handed way that honors those who died. Tune in next week when we analyze the motive and speculate a bit ourselves about other ways this might have gone.